Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Today, we have another special surprise cast. I'm so honored because it is going to be with a Bay Area San Francisco treat. Andy Pastelanik from Chime School, the master of the indie jangle pop, and Melody along with Hooks. Andy, welcome to Surprise Cast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Doing good. I'm doing good. How about yourself? Yeah. Before we really launch into this conversation, I mentioned to you off the recording that it's kind of like this, perhaps trying to f- follow all the pieces in the Bay Area indie pop scene. What's that like right now? Are you feeling kind of this groundswell of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. It's 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 kind of unbelievable that you know there's some focus on us at this particular point. I mean, there's been great stuff going on here for so long, and there's so many times that you know so many amazing bands that were around that you know didn't seem to get a similar kind of renown. But you know, obviously, we're just grateful that people care about what we're doing. So it's it's it's. It's fun. It's it's an honor that people are interested. All right, let's kind of retrace our steps and go all the way back kind of to the origin of your name. And I had done a little bit of homework here and I found that your last name the kind of the meaning of it is strength, highly attractive. Does that seem correct? <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell me tell me about your strengths as a musician, as an artist. I don't know. Probably uh, as a musician, I think that when you are a drummer and a songwriter, that you can kind of, it it kind of like unlocks a little bit extra that I feel kind of makes you better at both things. You know, like I, I didn't really feel like I became a good drummer until I started writing songs. And I also kind of feel that my guitar playing or bass playing or keyboard playing or whatever is also kind of influenced by sort of that sense of rhythm, I suppose. So that's kind of a, maybe one, one unique thing about being sort of like a multi-instrumental type person for me personally. And I'm looking forward to learning more about that as the conversation soldiers on here. Let's go back to your childhood. Tell me about an impactful, memorable experience for you. It could be positive. It could be negative. Something that still lingers in your mind. I was thinking about, I was trying to decide whether to just tell like a silly story about like being a teenager or whatever. But I, I guess like maybe a formative sort of experience is I remember there wasn't really a lot of like, you know, my, my parents weren't super into music they weren't listening to music all the time and maybe there was like the oldie station in the car or whatever but i do remember like you know rooting around in the garage and finding like this old classical guitar that my dad had and like i didn't know that he ever played an instrument but that was kind of like my first time like touching a guitar i think i was maybe like 11 or 12 and probably i'd seen that guitar case in the garage for years but just like never you know, never had an interest in it. And then, yeah, that kind of like got me sort of interested in in playing an instrument. Where was this located? 
Uh, I grew up in North County, San Diego. So like Encinitas area. And then you moved up to San Francisco when? When I was 18, I went to UC Davis in Northern California. Yeah. And there I got involved in in college radio station, KDBS. And uh, yeah, that was kind of like my next formative music experience. They have a fabulous record store there and I'm blanking on the name. Armadillo, maybe? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Great call. I used to spend a lot of time in Davis in 1992. Mm -hmm. Great times there. Tell me about your relationships with your parents growing up. I mean, they're really supportive. You know, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, supportive parents. You know, yeah, I don't. (laughs) Brother, sister? No, only child. Oh, child, yeah. So, what was that experience like? I was, I was a teacher, elementary school teacher for twenty years, and I always found it fascinating to work with students who are single, only children. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fine. I, I guess probably spent a lot of time learning how to entertain myself. You know, mm-hmm. but also like kind of sort of like environment I grew up in. I had a lot of friends in the neighborhood and. You know, we would just like tear around the neighborhood on our bicycles and skateboards and like run through the canyons and just do all that kind of like sort of stuff that that people think of as like an anachronism at this point. You know what I mean? Like tree houses and playing baseball and all that kind of stuff. Did you have relatives nearby? Yeah. I mean, I was probably like one sort of like formative thing about how I grew up is I was like the youngest person in my family. So even like extended like my my nearest cousin was probably like 13 years older than me. So yeah, we did that family nearby, like in more like Orange County, Los Angeles area. Okay. So you talked about finding this guitar case. So Mm -hmm. when and how did music begin to shape your life? Well, I suppose when I was in high school, I started playing, you know, just kind of like some, some bands and, just kind of like messing around at friends' houses with like drum sets and guitars and stuff like that. But it wasn't something that like, I suppose I got really passionate about until like a little bit later in my teen years when I started getting into kind of like more like indie music and, you know, stuff that was a more akin to like what I'm interested in now, you know what I mean? Like on the path. Was there a particular radio station you glommed onto? Like for me, here is Live 105 with Steve Masters and Mark Hamilton and all that. That kind of kind of broke that alternative barrier. Was there one growing up that you really yeah, gravitated towards? No. Honestly, like I kind of have a generation where like my teen years were after kind of like alternative rock broke down, you know, and like indie was kind of like dead is a big thing you know like what people think of as like college rock and into like you know the the year punk broke and all that kind of stuff like that was all over and it was like going into like new metal and like you know (laughs) just i don't know mainstream music was kind of a bummer in the late 90s you know what i mean so like you kind of had to like dig to find stuff that was interesting and kind of where i grew up like I was a little bit isolated from like anything that like kind of seemed cool. You know what I mean? By like 
whatever standards now or like it seemed like folks who were teenagers in the 80s and early 90s were just like surrounded by like a different kind of culture than what I experienced in those years where I grew up, you know. So who are some bands that really caught your attention? Probably like the first like indie thing that somebody shared with me. I mean, like, you know, I guess I was listening to like The Cure or whatever when I was like a teenager. But it was probably like somebody turned me on to Elliot Smith when I was like 14. So that was kind of like an early one. I got into that and, you know, that was a little bit of a gateway to some stuff. I remember finding out about the Velvet Underground when I was like 15 or 16. That was a big one. You know, and then, you know, getting into like Sonic Youth was huge too. And My Bloody Valentine, stuff like that when I was a teenager. So that kind of sent me along along the path, you know. Did you jump into that pool of shoegaze dream pop? Did you get in did you get bit by that bug? I did with uh, yeah, like I remember when I was maybe like sixteen, I was probably listening to like Loveless and Daydream Nation like on repeat in my car. You know what I mean? Just like all the time. Those were my two favorite records for for a while. And I remember like buying like used CDs at this record store. I think it's still there in Carlsbad called Spin Records. And I remember like they just had, you know, it was like, it seems so old school now, but they just had, you know, like just these slips for the CD art, you know, like no plastic cases. And like, I brought the one for like Daydream Nation up to the counter. And there was this dude who like, you know, at that (laughs) age, I thought of as like some grizzled old, like scene vet or something. He was probably like 30, you know, (laughs) but he was like, oh, have you heard, dude? have you heard this record? And I was like, no, no, I haven't heard it. He kind of gave me this look where he was just like, shit, like, yes, you know, (laughs) like your mind's about to be blown. And it it was, you know, he's right, you know. When did you realize that you could start moving into that realm of playing in a band, whether it be on drums or guitars? When did you go, okay, I can, I can actually hold my own here. I mean, would, it would have been years later than that, you know. After I moved up to Davis, I started doing stuff at the college radio station. And at that point, I kind of gravitated more towards like booking shows and like doing sound and like engineering bands in the studio. And like I didn't really have like a lot of musicianship at that time, you know. And so I sort of got into kind of the other side of it. But then, of course, like when you're that close to it, it's not very long before someone's like, hey, you can do this. Like, I need someone to play bass or I need someone to play drums or whatever. But it was probably not until I was in my like early 20s that I started playing music a little more seriously. One thing, I suppose, I got into playing drums because a roommate of mine in college had a drum set in this house that we lived in, in the garage. And that's when I started playing drums just for fun, you know? And I would just kind of like put headphones in and like I started playing drums by listening to like old soul music and like playing along to like, you know, 60s soul records, basically, like oldies stuff. And that was kind of like my my foray into learning drums 
I didn't realize you had done your stint of learning how to book shows. Does that help you today in having that experience? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like looking back at this point, like that was 20, almost 20 years ago. And like we were doing, we were booking, you know, probably me and my roommate, there was like a cafe in downtown Davis called the Delta Venus that we used to book shows at. And I think at the height, we were doing like three or four shows a week all through like an answering machine, like at our house. And every so often, you know, my friend Brendan would make like a tape of the funny messages that we'd get from people, you know, because it would be like, I mean, yeah, it kind of, it was pre-smartphone, almost like, almost pre-cell phone. I mean, we did it on an answering machine, so everyone had access to it. But yeah. It was the it was the true old sort of DIY <laughs> thing. And I, I don't really have any I didn't keep any records of anything, which is stupid because like I could have had like the most amazing address book, like people yeah. from the world. But yeah, I mean that was kind of like my foray into like being part of like a actual DIY scene. And it was super formative because I was like, you know, nineteen or twenty years old at the time completely steeped in it and i was like so naive thinking like oh this is what life's going to be like forever <laughs> did you enjoy your college experience at davis overall yeah it was great i mean for me the college was the radio station you know yeah. like I, you know the academic side was amazing and you know i learned a lot about you know all kinds of stuff it formed a political framework and you know a cognitive map of you know how the world and all kinds of stuff but as far as sort of like the life that I lead now, it was definitely through the radio station. You graduated from Davis at what year? 2006. Okay. So then where did you go next? I hung around for a little while and worked at a record store in Sacramento called Records. That was on Broadway before it moved and now it's closed. And then I moved to San Francisco in 2008. And did you have, were you just kind of starting fresh or did you already have a job lined up? No, I, mean, I almost moved to New York. I had a bunch of friends that moved to New York and I was really close to doing that and stuck around and ended up moving to, to San Francisco. I had some friends who moved there. It was kind of like the closest big city. It was a place I always kind of liked and would go visit, you know, living in Northern California and I know I didn't have a job. I had a little bit of money saved up from, you know, working some jobs and having extremely cheap rent in Davis. And I moved to the city and really struggled. I moved there like two months after the 2008 financial meltdown. It was like impossible to find work. So yeah, I just kind of like found a roommate on Craigslist and yeah, just moved to San Francisco. Were you still playing any music at that time? I was in a band called San Francisco Water Cooler, which is really obscure, but probably our only claim to... F well, I mean, we got some really nice reviews, but it was kind of the age of indie stuff where like the internet wasn't as much of a player as it is now where like, you know, everything's right at your fingertips. Like you still had to dig and read you know, zines or like indie publications or blogs to find out about stuff and order it direct from the band. Like there wasn't like a marketplace like there is now, you know, 
All right, so let's move into Chime School. When was that seed planted? I started writing songs in 2017 after being kind of like a drummer and kind of like playing in other bands and always wanting to do a bit more with the creative side of things. I never thought I could write songs. And then my partner bought me a four track and she kind of said like, all right, well, here you go. Now, now you can do this. And I was like, oh, fuck, like I have to do it now. (laughs) But by that point, it's kind of crazy. Like I'd been involved in music in one way or another for so long that, you know, it, there was something in there, I guess, you know, so I was able to write some songs and still doing it. I had read a review or interview that you did, and I want to read you this quote, and I'd love for you to speak to it because there's something I absorb in your music, and it's that burst of, you know, the infectious craft for the hook and, and melody. So this is what you said. The thing about pop music is it can be an escape, but there's also some melancholy in those chimey harmonies too on all that classic pop music that I like, whether it's classic birds or bands like the pastels has that happy melancholy combination too. So let's talk about those two emotions kind of clashing together. Can you speak to more of that, please? Yeah. I mean, um, probably the most formative pop music for me is the stuff from the sixties. I was really into like the Ronnie Spector stuff and all the gold star studios kind of stuff and all that music is like insanely catchy but it's also kind of sad i mean you know you know the stuff you know the kind of stuff i'm talking about (laughs) so yeah that's uh you know that kind of i guess that's sort of my angle creatively to some extent i'd learned that nick cave when he gets ready for the day and does his work he will go into a studio and he'll sit down at the piano and he'll book time in that little room for a good seven, eight hours, even more. That's his approach to work. Tell me about your craft. Tell me about the way that you go about learning how to be a, become a better musician. I'm not really like a really technical musician. Like I don't like practice or like run scales or like study theory or any of that kind of stuff. It all kind of comes out of like, you know, the song and the melody and things like that. So I don't really like practice guitar. I mean, I suppose I did at an earlier age or, you know, like an earlier period. But now, like if I, if I'm in like a mode of like, there's some, there's different phases of a creative process, right? Like there's like the ideas phase where you're just like, you know, walking down the street and you have a melody in your head and you pull out the voice memos app and like record it and then come back to it later. You know, there's the part where you're just kind of like killing time with a guitar, just sort of like, you know, you'll hear like something, you'll be like, Oh, cool. There's an idea. And just kind of like work on that. And then there's like the, then there's like the more of like the composition and execution phase where you have to come up with like a gesture as they would say to like, flesh out the the concept and then that's also like a whole nother creative process in and of itself too like the recording process do you love bridges middle eights in a song do you like really creating that absolutely yeah a hundred percent and 
I wish I could one of I, I wish I could remember exactly who said it, but the band Ride recorded they tried to make a record with some big producer in Los Angeles. I read this in the Creation Records story. And that producer, I wish I could remember the you have to read the book, but he was like, They can't write a bridge. They can't write a bridge. Every song's like five minutes long. There's no bridge. There's no middle eight. <laughs> that was funny. Because I was like, I love a middle eight. Like, love it. I didn't even know that it was called a middle eight. And when I read that, I was like, I was counting out like some of the bridges in the songs. I was like, oh yeah, I guess it's eight bars. I never thought of it that way. So I want to know why you love the middle eight. I mean, you know, who didn't grow up like listening to the Beatles or whatever? You know what I mean? Like all those all those songs from the 1960s have a middle eight, you know, all those classic pop songs. It's kind of like, you know, like I'm a big believer that like a song shouldn't be more than a certain amount of time. You know, like nothing should happen more than three times. You know, like what if that like the same thing more than two times is is sketchy. So like oftentimes I'll be writing a song and if it gets to the three minute mark, if it's not close to being done, then there's something wrong. You know what I mean? Like on on the next on the new record that's coming out later this year, there's some songs that are a tiny bit longer because they have like some, you know, maybe like extended outros, you know what I mean? For just for kind of like, you know, vibe or whatever. But like I generally try to keep things like moving along, you know? Okay, I have to ask this question, and you I'm sure you've been asked this several times before, but it's astounding to me on how bands write these incredible hooks and melodies. Bands like The Bats, The Chills, I mean, we can go on and on and on, Reds, Pinks, and Purples, blah, blah, blah. In coming to your town, I mean, that is a juggernaut of just a full throttle, up-tempo, let's go. Those mal- melodies just splash around your head, or do you have to work at this? I mean, it seems like you have a really incredible ear for crafting. I don't know. I mean, uh, I suppose it probably comes from like just spending a lot of time listening to records, you know? Yeah. And DJing a lot, like whether, you know, in college on the radio or, you know, in public at like bars or whatever, which I probably did, I guess, for maybe like 10 years after I, you know, was involved at the radio station, seeing tons and tons of bands. I was doing like for a job, you know, before I moved to the city, I would 
I was doing like sound engineering at some of the shows that we would book and then some other places. So I've just like seen a lot of bands play and I've listened to a lot of records, which isn't, to, you know, I'm not saying I have some great knowledge or anything. It's not what I'm getting at, but just like all of that, just kind of like by osmosis kind of like sinks in. And then I guess there's some melodies that kind of get, kind of come out of that. Do you ever create the melodies and the licks and go, ooh, that sounds too much like so-and-so? I, you know, I generally don't try to avoid, you know, like, I don't really think that, like, when people say that something, like, is ripping off something else or whatever, like, I kind of, in the era that we're in now, it's like, unless you're, like, directly plagiarizing, it's like, if I tried to make something that sounded like, you know, whatever, teenage fan club or something, right? Like, I can't do that. You know, like, there's things that like, either by like, how I'm recording it, by my own level of like, talent, and like, how I can play instruments, it just wouldn't come out the same. You know, it's sort of how like, the Beach Boys tried to make a soul record, right? They can't make a soul record. They failed, but they made something totally unique in Wild Honey, right? So it's kind of like it's kind of like that. Like the song Coming to Your Town came out of this lick I was writing, and it was based on the servants, a son, a small star. But like probably no one would ever make that connection, right? right. So there's kind of like a walking line that happens underneath this repeated melody. And that's where I got the idea from. But, you know, you can't hear it. But I sort of lifted it, you know. You you had mentioned the new album coming out later this year. So I want to know, obviously, you can't, you know, you don't have to divulge much. But how have you grown as an artist in the last, what, two to three years since your self-titled album came out compared to where this new album is like? Things happened a lot more quickly and a lot more easily with the second record than with the first record. I don't, you know, I can't really say how or why. I mean, I guess that's just what happens when you gain experience. It's like some things get easier and they're still not that easy, you know, like kind of amazed that there's folks who are able to, you know, churn out a record every year. It's kind of amazing. And there's so many different kinds of talents that go into play in order to achieve that for me every record like takes a pound of flesh you know what i mean like it's i get like so laser focused on it but to your question the production of the next record that's going to come out this year is like a huge step above in my opinion like what i was able to achieve on the first record i think the arrangements are you know a little bit more kind of like complex but also simple in a way you know the first record i was just like throwing so i was so excited to be making a record that i just tried to like jam as much as i possibly could into like every single song and i think with the second record maybe i was i'm a little more deliberate in terms of kind of like the vibe i'm trying to create with with each one so we'll see i gotta ask you about lyric writing do you like writing lyrics Compelled to say yes, because because I feel like I'm supposed to, but I actually don't really like writing lyrics. I'm, I'm more drawn to like arrangements and melody and mm-hmm. production and 
all the other aspects of it. In fact, like in in music I listen to, I have to admit, unless the lyrics are really bad or really, really good, I kind of see them as ornamental. I'm sorry. It's probably obvious when you listen to my stuff. It's not, I don't really consider it super like lyrically driven, but maybe it is. I just try to think of stuff that, that complements the song. All right. Now I had mentioned to you that I saw you pr- play, I think it was November with Reds, Pinks and Purples at the Kilowatt. I want to talk to you about concerts. This is a very fascinating topic for me. So how do you prepare for shows? Are you, do you kind of pace around? Do you really work hard on a set list? Do you think, okay, I'm going to take a song like Got a Bike and I'm going to flesh it out by 30, 30 more seconds. Get us into the mindset of preparing for a show. Well, I mean, I'm really fortunate to have a really great band who plays with me. Phil Lance and Josh Miller and Garrett Goddard are like super pro musicians. They're so good and they're really fun to play with. So we practice and yeah, I'm just so like, so stoked to be playing music with those guys. Very, very grateful. So, so that's, uh, you know, the first thing is there, there would be no show without that band, you know? So we practice, we have fun and play the songs and we kind of come up with arrangements for them that's you know oftentimes different than how they come out when i record them which i love you know like there's some stuff that i try to keep kind of the way that it is on the recording but for the most part it's kind of like a blank slate and we just sort of say like let's see what let's see what this is like when we play it together you know and so the live experience is a little different than like what comes through on the record but you know i i really like it. I, love it I think it's great so so we we practice and then we put together a set list and i'm set lists are really important i never understand when bands just kind of like throw songs on a list without thinking about it so i try to be pretty thoughtful about the set and then as far as like i don't really get like nervous or whatever before i play a show I mean, unless like something's going wrong, you know, like if the sound's really bad or like there's something really awkward going on in that particular day or show or whatever, I'm not like a real anxious, you know, performer. So the band, The Wedding Present, mm-hmm. the legend, legendary band, Wedding Present, they have such a vast catalog of music. And while performing live, there are some songs that kind of take on a whole new level, A Million Miles, Take Me, so on and so forth. Are there some songs of yours that you feel like, wow, people are really grooving to this. This is really kind of taking on a new life. Yeah, there's sort of that like, I don't know if I haven't really talked to a lot of people about like that feeling when you're like totally clicking with a band, you're playing something live and it's like everybody's totally locked in. But there's only it's rare, you know, like there's a few most most bands I've played in have like that moment, like in mm-hmm. certain songs. And there's definitely a few in Chime School as well. My favorite ones to play are Taking Time to Tell You, probably like the song that I've written that people, it's a common favorite. I really like our live version of Gone Too Fast, which is kind of like a slower, more minimal song from the first record. 
and we tend to open with it and we kind of turned it into sort of like maybe like it's a little bandwagon-esque sort of vibe and that one i I love to play I, i really like kind of what the what the group has turned that one into i i really like playing fixing motorcycles a lot as well i think that's another one that kind of like hits a little different when we do it live yeah and then you know we're working we're rehearsing the second record now so that's like a great challenge and really exciting and like when you're rehearsing new material it's like a reminder of all the work that you did on the previous material which you know feels so second nature you know like we can get together at this point like having not practice any of the other older stuff and just like like just shred through it you know and we have to get to that point with the the new stuff now (laughs) tell me a time when you were performing on stage with chime school and your bandmates that you knew wow we are dialed in we are rocking the show i don't know i mean some of my favorite shows that we've played have been we played the 75th anniversary of the Vesuvio bar in North Beach that, you know, we played outside in the alley in Jack Kerouac alley between City Lights bookstore and Vesuvio kind of like got to be like a, you know, top music experience to, to be doing that. Like it's the sort of thing that, you know, you were a teenager and you're like, whoa, like I'm doing this. That's pretty cool. You know? that was a good time kind of like magic sort of thing to do. I really enjoyed playing at the chapel in December or in November. We played with ocean blue and asteroid number four. That is like one of the best venues in the city to play. The sound is incredible. And then probably playing the four star theater in December was really fun too. Like, those those three are kind of like some highlights in terms of how it felt from the stage, you know, with like the sound and the the crowd and the vibe and all that sort of thing. So what is it that you love about being Chime School? What is it about that this experience that you're really embracing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't I don't know why I'm motivated to do this. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of fucking work. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. Like it's 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 crazy. Like you you have these like periods where you're like voraciously like devouring, you know, influences and you know, music that you're totally obsessed with. And then you, you try to figure out how to translate that into, you know, something that is, you know, creatively fulfilling, but also like good, you know. I think, you know, there are so many things that you have to do when you are trying to do a music project, especially like commercially or whatever. And that sucks, you know, like, you know, marketing related stuff or all the kind of stuff that like, isn't why we like to do music in the first place, at least for me anyway. And it's really easy to get distracted by those things, but really like the most fulfilling part of it for me personally is, recording and like actually getting like deep in a in like a music project somehow and trying to figure out how to like make like tie everything together and just make everything sound like exactly the way you want it to 
and then getting together with you know your bandmates and playing music is you know those are the things that make it worth it you know have you noticed a shift in making music creating music being part of that experience have you noticed a difference from what it was like for you five years ago versus today if so what are the new differences what are those challenges that you're facing in most ways it's actually easier than it used to be just because you know we have so much technology you know readily available so you know in that regard things are way easier you know like i can dial up almost you know almost any sound that i could ever think to to dial up you know with you know on a laptop at this point but then at the same time like there's so much there's so so there's fewer constraints you know and constraints are kind of what drive creativity you know so it's sort of challenging to 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 determine like what constraints to impose on yourself so that's kind of one challenge now compared to previously and you know there's also like you know I'm there's a certain amount of ambition too in terms of like wanting to you know make a record that you feel like lives up to the stuff that you love and so there's quite a bit of like self-imposed pressure to try to do that and then you know there's always anyone who's in into a performing art has like there's some amount of like ego investment that needs to be minimized as much as possible so yeah i mean i guess in terms of the challenges there's some of that people you know have, have talked about the scene here as having some amount of renown and you know we're not like not trying to overblow it like it's all indie underground music you know what i mean and super grateful for you know the support that we've gotten from anyone who's interested in what we're doing but you know we want to we want to put out a thing that the people like you know there's a little pressure in it how do you stay connected with your fan base authentically i don't do i have a fan i don't know if i have a fan base but that's <laughs> that's that's very kind it's, you know to me you know the only thing i didn't mention in terms of like my favorite thing about doing music is just playing shows with bands that I like and being around people who like the music, sharing that kind of like interest in it. So the kind of like community that comes out of that is, is the other part aside from the creativity that like keeps the whole thing going, you know, and that's something that I've kind of been involved in for so long at this point that I forget that it's not, maybe it's not that common for a lot of folks, you know, I think I kind of got away from your question there, but yeah, as far as staying connected, like I don't really think of, I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't know if I really have a fan base, but like in terms of, I think of it as a community, you know, of like people who are into kind of a lot of the same music and so many of us are all in each other's bands anyways. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're kind of like fans of each other to some extent, you know? So that's a part of it too. And then there's also just folks that we see around who come to all the shows who, you know, are really nice, great people. People travel from other cities to see shows. It's always kind of amazing. People play our stuff on their radio shows or their online, you know, shows and stuff like that. So 
it's kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's great. Do you mind telling us real quickly what other sidebands projects you're a part of? Yeah. I played drums in a band called Sea Blight. It's like a shoegaze, shoegazy kind of band. I also kind of like mixed and sort of like co-produced that record that just came out by them. I also played drums in the live Flower Town band, which I really love because I just kind of show up and play the songs and they do all of the, or they're the band, like I'm part of the live group. So that's really fun. I really love their approach and to, to all aspects of like the band and the music and everything. And that is... I think that's all I'm doing right now. <laughs> it's there's oh, always well, something else. Lemon Lights was one of my favorite albums. I mean, that that's a, whew, that was a great album drop last year. Yeah, thank you. And got, I know it received a lot of critical attention, and people seem to enjoy that. And I believe you're playing at Noise Pop. Is that correct, Seablock? Yeah, Chime School is playing with okay. uh, at the Kilowatt March first. And we're playing with Teal Pop, a newer group from LA, and uh, Space Moth, who's from the East Bay. Both two two artists I'm really excited to play with and see. So yeah, it's going to be a great show. We, we've gotten to this part of the conversation where we're going to have a little bit of fun here. Can you talk to me about two to three albums that have had a significant impact on your life? Yeah, you. Uh, I, well, I read the questions, and that was one that I wanted to definitely like prepare for. So I think you <laughs> asked me to like bring them, like show and tell, yeah. right? Yeah, show and tell time. So this is like the probably like the the main formative jangle for Chime School. It's the first Primal Scream record, Sonic Flower Groove, and I remember the first time I heard this, my girlfriend Jessica played it for me in her apartment when we started dating. And it was like the sound that I heard in my head when I thought of the birds, but it was like the act, like someone went and actually made that sound, you know, and it completely like blew me away. And yeah, that was, that was like a, a new course for me sonically. Is there uh, a, is there a blue ribbon track for you on that one? Oh, an imperial treasure trip. Where are we going on that? One? Uh, Gentle Tuesday and Sonic Sister Love. I think, yeah, those are the ones. Yeah, the guitars on the whole thing, but like, yeah, those two. You could probably hear a bit of Sonic Sister Love in the guitar lick on Fixing Motorcycles. Yep, and there's a song on the next record that was one of the first songs I ever wrote, but I wasn't able to really realize the sound i was going for that is a little bit based on gentle tuesday so but that's something that you'll hear later so that one's big teenage fan club songs from northern britain a little bit controversial when sometimes when i say that i think this is my this is my favorite teenage fan club record similar to how the first Primal Scream record is the sound that I hear in my head when I think of the birds. Some of the songs on Songs from Northern Britain is the sound that I hear in my head when I think of Big Star, mm-hmm. who got maybe a little closer to the sound than the birds got to 
to what Primal Scream did with that first record. <laughs> but yeah, just you know, start again. Winter. Yeah, it's just it's great. So yeah, that's a big one. Early My Bloody Valentine. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, there's yeah, the the early, early stuff, the 12 string guitar stuff is you know, I say this as someone who has been listening to this band since I was like 17 years old. You know what I mean? So like I'm allowed to say that this is my favorite, my bloody Valentine stuff. I didn't even know that this stuff existed until way, way later. And so it kind of, you know, blew me away that that they made all this like fantastic jangly short songs stuff before they became like, you know, what everybody thinks of. The Primitives, lovely. One of my all-time favorite records, like, period. Uh, it's amazing production, like the pop songs, like all of it. The first Chime School record has a lot, owes a lot to this record, even though, like, I can't even claim to get anywhere close to the production on this record. I was thinking about it a lot when I programmed the drum machine stuff for the first Chime School record. Shop Assistants, mm. also classic, super influential. Yeah, Alex Taylor, one of the best singers of all time. R.I.P. Love the Motorcycle Boy, too. Yeah. McCarthy, one of my favorite groups. Uh, you know, I was joking about lyrics earlier and how they're not important or whatever, but I really like, you know, the whole kind of like thing with McCarthy, you know, talking shit about capitalism, anti-capitalist pop band, use a bank, I'd rather die, I <laughs> myself up from nothing. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, of course, Sea Urchins, Pristine Christine, Summershine, You're So Much. Yeah, there's a, definitely a lot that I lifted from this stuff too. So, Did you really get into the Sarah movement, the Sarah Records movement? I got into it. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like as far as like indie pop generally, of the, of the age that I'm at, like I was, I was kind of like in my early 20s when indie was going mainstream in the early 2000s. And it really turned me off to it. And so I got into like older stuff, like oldies, you know, and then I got into weird music and like more kind of like difficult music and like punk and no wave and like kind of like mutant disco sort of stuff. So much other kind of music, free jazz. And, and I didn't really come back to indie music until I moved to San Francisco uh, I mean, you know, and I listened to it as well, you know, in the early 2000s when I was in my early 20s. But yeah, I got into stuff like Sarah a bit like later, you know, in my late 20s and early 30s and just, you know, dove like really deep into it. Jane Duff is the, the writer, the author. She just released this amazing book. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's a I have it. Story. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but I, I listened to your interview with Jane, and that was great. It was, it was really oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Yeah, she, 
She definitely knows her stuff and a really solid writer. All right. What's next for Chime School? Any other band involvements? And then how can people find your work? Well, the next record is done. The art is done. We're finishing the masters now. That'll be out on Slumberland in the summer. There'll be an announcement and all the forthcoming marketing stuff soon. So that's really exciting. We're going to do some touring around that. That'll happen later this year. Uh, We might make a visit to some other parts of the world. So that should be exciting. Can't really announce anything yet. Okay. Yeah, but for now, we're playing we're playing Noise Pop on uh, March 1st at the Kilowatt in San Francisco. And yeah, you can follow us online on Instagram and Bandcamp and buy our stuff. Check it out. Can uh, you tell the listener what Noise Pop is real quickly? Oh, gosh. I mean, without knowing like enough of a history, I don't know if I could give it like a proper synopsis, but it's, you know, long time kind of like music festival that started in San Francisco in the 1990s. And what's cool about playing uh, noise pop at Kilowatt is that they did some of the early noise pop shows back in the nineties. So it'll be cool to be playing a noise pop show at, you know, one of the venues that hosted some of the original noise pop shows. Andy Pasolanik, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure speaking with you and learning more about who you are as a musician, as a person, and really enjoyed kind of gaining more access to kind of what makes you tick and and kind of what you bring to the table as far as a musician and that experience with Chime School and Sea Blight. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, William. Thank you for tuning in. My name is William, AKW, host of the High Art on the Edge page. If you like this conversation, you can check out more on the podcast channel, Surprise Cast. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Ciao.